Thank you for listening to this episode of the Following Films Podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and into the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today we're joined by Mark Bernard to discuss his directorial debut, the short film Splinter. Mark is a journalist, public speaker, TV and comic book writer, podcaster, and now filmmaker. He has served as film editor for the Los Angeles Times and senior editor for The Hollywood Reporter and Entertainment Weekly. He's written for GQ, Wired, Details, Vulture, Playboy, and Empire. He's been a staff writer for Castle Rock, Treadstone, and Carnival Row, and is the supervising producer on Star Trek Picard. But today, we're going to talk about his short film, Splinter. Splinter is focused on Benjamin a boy who spent most of his 10 years on an airplane that almost never lands. Because when his feet touch the ground, rage spreads like a virus. But when the midair collision forces the plane to land, it falls to his caretaker and her associate to deal with the explosive fallout. But before we dive into our conversation with Mark, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore, where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and in the magic of the cinematic arts. So if you're looking to expand your film, music, or movie collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's. There's always something truly wonderful to discover. Have you followed the following films podcast on Spotify? If you have, well, thank you. If you hadn't, head on over to Spotify, search for following films, and give us a follow. It really does help the show. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Mark. Splinter just screened at this year's Holly Shorts Festival, and we'll be playing genre festivals throughout the rest of the year. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. To be like, ah, get the mic going, get the mic going. Ah, we sit. <laughs> well, that's uh, getting the kids to bed. I know that, that you're just out of that. So <laughs> everything yeah, okay is. tonight, man? It is still a whole thing, but yeah, thank you for being patient. Dude, no no, no worries. If, if there's one thing I understand, it is absolutely that. That was the, um, I've gotten into the habit of, we went on a vacation with my seven-year-old and we started meditating at night. Um, my, my, my son has, um, uh, he's on the spectrum. And so it, it's something that we started as a calming thing for him a while ago. And now it's become this habit of every night. And I try to take any shortcuts with this kid in his routine and it will never happen ever. Well, my daughter is also on the spectrum, but she's 20. Um, when, and I wish she was in a place where we can meditate with her at all. Um, instead, we are reading the same children's books we've read her oh. since she was four. <laughs> that she knows by heart, but she just of likes course. Um, so yeah, she was the one that I was like, all right, shower, go to bed. <laughs> and it's every night at like nine 30, the, the, the train begins and, uh, and it always gets to the station by like nine 50. <laughs> that, that, that train will always make it to the station on time. There's nothing you can do to de- derail no. a bitch, man. <laughs> no, not even close. Not even close. Well, sorry. Just thank you so much for taking the time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Um, I got to tell you right out of the, it's going to sound like a strange question, but um, did you control the password for the Vimeo link for the screener link? Was that something you designed or is that something that the publicist put on there? Yeah, no, that's all me. Okay. I was hoping so. 
because that was something when I saw the password, I thought, oh, well, this is either a publicist who decided to put this on here and it's just a comment about it or Mark is just saying, okay, I'm going to go ahead and plant my flag. And this is, I'm going to throw it out there for you right now and see what you think about this. And I thought that was a bold move to do that. And you actually lived up to it. So congratulations on that, man. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was, uh, it was very much a, uh, I mean, the short began as a Twilight Zone episode. Like literally, you know, I do this podcast with Kevin Smith called Fat Man and we were in Vancouver doing a live show and we're driving around Vancouver. He might have been looking for weed. I can't remember. That's right days. And uh, and he was like, hey, I got this call from uh, from Monkey Paw. They asked me if I wanted to direct, write and direct a Twilight Zone episode, one of the one of the new Jordan Peele ones. And so Kevin's like, well, do you want to do a Twilight Zone? And I said, yes, Kevin, I would like to do a Twilight Zone. He's like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know, but we'll think of something. And so on the flight home from Vancouver, um, I think he was up there directing like Supergirl or something. Mm -hmm. So I'm on my way back to LA from Vancouver. And I'm like, well, what do they always have in Twilight Zones? They have a creepy kid and they have a plane episode. So why don't we do a creepy kid on a plane episode? Um, And so I like on the plane, like jotted down like a paragraph of it and like emailed it to Kev from the plane. He's like, that's dope. Let's do that one. (laughs) <laughs> and in the in in the like the interim however long it was it might have been a couple of months you know kevin got pushed from season two to season three and then there was no season three okay and so then there was just this kernel of an idea that had been kind of laying around the hard drive for uh for a couple of years and then when i when i made that decision when i when i crossed that rubicon of wanting to make a short film before i turned 50 that was the yeah. promise i made for myself um, I'm going to do this before it's because I see like these 22 year old kids just out there. We're making a movie. We're going to go do the thing. I'm like, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you. Go and do the thing. Go make art. But also, I want to make art. <laughs> like, I got this job. I know these people. Like, I've been in the world for a little bit. Like, let's let's give it a go. And once I once I kind of promised myself and held myself to that promise, this was the thing I wanted to do. Um, and very, very stupidly, this was the thing I wanted to do. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this for the first at bat, man. This is something that you're uh, you you rely on muscle memory for a lot of the things you do, and you're not. Uh, how do you handle this with? You're dealing with special effects. You're dealing with uh, multiple locations. You're dealing with. Um, I, I don't want to give away the film because, like any Twilight Zone episode, it's something that is. There's the uh, the twist, but this is something that I think holds up on multiple viewings. Um, so I, I don't think that you have you can know the twist and it it survives that because I've watched it three times now, and I think that um, you, yeah, man, how do I put this without ruining anything? Um, <laughs> just the idea of taking on something this complex. This is not a straightforward two people in a room talking. It has that, but you also have action sequences here, and your punches land which is something that is not easy to do. Um, you don't end up in a Godfather situation where the punch is, you know, a foot and a half away. You end up with something where I actually felt the weight of injury in this, which is something that is pretty impressive, man. You know, it's, um, I, the, to a point, like there's certain things that, you know, you kind of know a little bit how to do. And I, I come to this as a writer. Yeah. So my my first job and my my highest um, responsibility is to the script. 
not the letter of the script, but the intention of the script, like the emotional reality of the script. But when I was talking to department heads and collaborators, I told them from the beginning, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never lit a set. I've never rigged for sound. I've never done makeup. I've never done hair. I've never designed a costume. I've never, I've never put together a production. I don't know how to do what you do. So I'm not going to presume to tell you how to do what you do. I'll tell you if it runs against what I think it's about, if, if it collides with the the intent of the piece, or if it if it wanders from the character story that we want to tell. And the actors, almost all of them were friends. So I could also say, hey, listen, can you please be gentle with me? <laughs> like, if I'm not giving you enough, tell me I'm not giving you enough. Tell me you need more. Tell me. Tell me if you want to go again. If I think I've got it, you think you, you have a little bit more in the tank, well, do it again. It's only video. Who cares? Um, and so I think that, that that level of candor, like when our stunt coordinator like showed up on the day, I was like, hey, man, you're set. He's like, yeah? He's like, yeah, you're designing this fight. I'm going to tell you what kind of needs to happen. But when it's your people out there almost punching each other in the face, that's your set. That's your responsibility. You say action, you say cut. Like, you tell me how we can sell these punches the best. You tell me how we can achieve the level of kind of chaos that I think we're looking for without anybody getting hurt. So while it's your set, it's your set. <laughs> and, you know, it, and I think that that's the weirdest thing about artists and collaboration and and empowering people to do the thing that they do best is they actually want you to look better. Like they want it to be good <laughs> yeah. because they're they're able to give all of it to it. Like, hey, you're gonna let us do what? I can put the lights where I want? All right, we're gonna light the hell out of this. Just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> if you give people the room to do their jobs and do it well, they're gonna shine for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hire the right people and then let them do what you hire them for. Um, and it only goes wrong if you hire the wrong people. <laughs> and so every meeting is a gut check. Every meeting is a, can we get along? Can we, for like 12 hours a day, in a very intense scenario, not break? <laughs> not want to shiv each other in the spine? <laughs> like, I feel like after this hour-long Zoom meeting, maybe we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I, you, you touched on it, the the casting here a little bit. The who in God's name, I believe her name, is it Yatiti? Is that how you pronounce Yatiti, it? Yeah. Who is she? She's phenomenal. I, I, I was looking her up and I, I haven't watched American Gods. I love the book too much to even touch the series. So I was nervous about it. I've been, you know, beaten up too many times, I think. But I, after seeing this, do I need to go re to check this thing out? Because she's phenomenal here, man. She's amazing in American Gods. She's She's amazing even when the show isn't. And, you know, the first season is good. The first season is strong. Like, I think if you like the book, you'll like the first season. Okay. Um, it takes wild swings. And half of them connect. And if half of those wild swings work, then you have something that feels interesting and new and different. And even the ones that don't connect, they were just wild enough that you'd be like, oh, all right, I see why they tried that. <laughs> Not entirely successful, but I applaud the effort. Um. She was great in a in a small arc on This Is Us, mm, okay. um, playing a I, I think it was like a Philadelphia um, rec center administrator, something like that. Um, but every time I'd seen her, every little thing I had seen her in, there was always just this little thing like, oh, 
Oh, would you look at her? Oh, God, damn. Okay. And then I, I happened to meet her um, fairly socially. Like, you know, a friend was in town and was having a dinner and, and she invited both of us separately. And then I discovered she's a massive nerd, like a deep, like to the core nerd. Like, we'll go pound for pound with anybody on Dune. We'll dig deep oh. into foundation. Like, she's like classic old school sci-fi nerd. And uh, and she was the first person that I was not related to that I showed this to. Um, and uh, and she called me like a half an hour after I emailed it to her. She's like, this is great. I was like, I was hoping you could say that. Would you let me play more again? She said, I was hoping you would say that. You so would. <laughs> hey, and damn man she's so good it's so that that's the thing when i go back everybody's goodness i mean it's every two seconds in this little short i'm seeing an old familiar friend in this thing but it's like it is just i, I think you, you called in every favor you have because it's just it's oh wait was Absolutely. that just oh they're already gone and <laughs> it's, it's literally was that nicole brown in this for a scene like yes she was <laughs> she has this remarkable thing that she can do in two seconds where you recognize her and then completely forget that it's her in a moment because she's so damn charming that you just let go and you're like, oh, that it, it, look at that, wonderful. We get a little treat and then you're just buy-in completely. That yeah, quickly. she was like, what's my character in the scene? I was like, your character is warmth. Just play warmth. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> and she does it, and and it's and and it's just, but you also have the. Again, not to give it away, the moral dilemma at this, um, mm -hmm. which is something that when watching this with my wife had a much different read than I did, which uh, she's much smarter than I am, where <laughs> I took this literally. And most of the time, I am I just take things as they are for the most part. She watched this and she said, oh, no, no, no. Uh, when the I, when when you get to the airport sequence, um, mm -hmm. she's like, oh, no, this is just status quo. There's nothing here. There's nothing strange afoot. This is just how the world is now. Uh, so I, was like, I appreciated that, but I tend to think that, yeah, that the film isn't leading us in that direction. It uh, it works both ways. <laughs> I will say to your point, Chris, it was not designed to be a commentary on modern civility or lack thereof. But if it plays that way, great. I mean, it it, it holds up. <laughs> like, I couldn't argue with her too much about it, that it just, it did feel very real in that way. But so then how have the reactions been to this? Cause this is, there's a weirdly long tradition of people who are journalists becoming filmmakers and often successfully. I think there's some have given it a bad name, but some of my favorite filmmakers started out as journalists. Um, how has this been for you to be on the other side of that sort of uh, commentary? It, it's funny, like the last the last like eight years of my life have been on the other side of that. Um, I was a journalist for a long time, for like 20 years. Yeah. Um, and then made the jump to being a TV writer, like professional TV writer. So I've been doing that for the last like seven years or so. And so I got it first then, whereas they're like, oh, so Mr. Fancy Pants has been writing about this stuff and now decides he wants to write this stuff. Let's see how this goes. And whatever. You know, like I, I, I greet it with the same sort of equanimity as one would greet anything, which is that's mm -hmm. a harmless in your opinion, and you can decide for yourself if it's any good or not. Um, all I will say is they keep paying me to do it, so somebody thinks it's okay. 
if it was not passing muster, then I this would no longer be a career, and I'd go back to being journalist, which was never the worst thing in the world anyway. No. Um, it is different, though, being um, being the focal point, I guess. That's, that's what I was going to say. You're in a writer's room. There's a little bit of anonymity in that, that it's not solely your name on that. I mean, people that know you know that you're in the writer's room, but the average, average person that's watching Castle Rock probably doesn't know the names of the people who wrote that show. No, they have no idea. However, they also blame me for everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, how come that happened? Oh, Mark was on it. No wonder. It's like, I sure. I'm sorry. I dug that season, man. I, I So I'll give you credit. So I enjoyed it. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it however I can get it. Um, but yeah, this is this is a little bit different in that, you know, it is, I'm never going to say it's all mine, but um, I do bear more responsibility for this than than anything else I've done. And it's been a kind of wonderful experience in a way that I hadn't expected it to be. Um, some of it is because um, when we kickstarted this, this short, which is, if you've seen it, you know, we spent some money. Um, we spent yeah. more money than I had <laughs> on it. Um, because I had also said, well, listen, if it's if it costs between A and B, I can cover that. Like I, I've got some money saved. I can pick up a little like freelance. I'll write an episode of an animated show. Hint, hint, Kevin. I want to write an episode of Masses of the Universe. Okay, great. You know, I'll put that in the kitty and we'll make a short film. And then when my uh, line producer looked at it, she said, "Buddy, it is going to be more than that. It's going to be like three times more than that, and that's the cheapest way we can get away with it. We need to raise some money." And I, I was completely convinced for the entirety of the month before we were prepping the Kickstarter launch that like, all right, listen, I'm going to have to dub like three or four friends and just like give them money to donate to the cause to pull this corpse over the finish line at day 30 because we have to make the short, but we're never going to get the money. So I'm going to end up having to kick it in and you can't do that as a Kickstarter. Right. Um, you know, whatever you want to call it, progenitor. So it's like, hey, you three guys, I'm giving you, I'm gonna give you each like 20 grand. <laughs> Please just drop it in the bucket. And uh and and Kevin, Kevin Smith of all people was like, I don't think you understand how big of an audience there is who like the podcast, who've liked your journalism, who've liked your comic book work, who've who've sort of over the years kind of hopped on a train that didn't charge them any price of admission to get on said train. And now is the first time they can actually pay you back for that. I don't think you know how many people those are. It was like, you're right. I don't. I don't believe they're there. <laughs> and then we crossed our first goal in the first 12 hours. My um, God, man. You know, I started like, weeping at my desktop, like in a writer's room on some show I can't even remember, just crying like a baby. They're like, why is your camera off? I do know. <laughs> It's a damn for me. So then, uh, when do you cross the finish line? Then it, you're expecting to have to throw this in. How long did it take to achieve the final goal for everything? Um, I mean, we we got our we got our nut. Like I said, in twelve hours, we we I mean, we went. I mean, you don't you don't like stop a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, okay, it, you don't. It just kind of runs that. out. Like it'll run its course. Right. By the time we we hit the the finish line we got three three times what we were initially asking for damn today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by bookman's 
Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookman's. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookman's, I found a copy of the 1946 film, Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time, captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance, and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature. The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Which, which ultimately meant we could pay everybody. Yeah. You know, we can pay them. I'm not going to say what they were worth because they're worth a lot, but we paid them a, a fair wage. We were able to shoot an extra day on, on our sound stages, which I didn't think we'd be able to do. We were able to feed everybody. We were able to, you know, just make it so that it was an actual movie, you know, and people were coming to work and not doing me a favor. Yeah. You know? And then, of course, we were shooting in the middle of COVID. And so we had to add, you know, the extra budgetary wad of whatever in, you know, PPE and testing and COVID regulations and all of that stuff. So not a dime went to waste. Well, you, I know it's cliche, but you do feel like you're, this is not the typical short that was made on uh, the weekend by a couple of friends. I mean, I love those things. I love seeing emerging artists, but I usually don't see something. I I don't see anything like your refueling sequence in this, which <laughs> the, the, when, when I saw it, it made me jump the first time. And then when I showed it to my wife earlier tonight, she jumped at that moment. And so it's, yeah, you don't see something like that in a short film most of the time. 
Well, it's funny because like the first pass of the script was very much like Air Force One. <laughs> like we're gonna cut outside of the plane and see the two things in midair and a giant explosive wad of flame and theory. And then uh producer was like, No, no, we can't we, I mean, sure, if we if you want to raise a million dollars, we can give you that shot. Um, but no. And so then it became, all right, well, then let's just experience it the way the characters would experience it. Let's keep it all inside the cockpit. That way, we don't have to show much of anything. We'll do some we'll do some old school Star Trek stuff. We'll just bounce the camera and people will rock around. And it works, though. You know, the audio department would, would you know, make their money and then make that and sell that. And one, like, five-second VFX shot of a, of a cockpit monitor. But it works. It, the it sound works. sells it, and it absolutely works. Your sound mix here uh, is clearly great. I think you did a great job with this. You paid attention to that, which is one of those things in a lot of times in short films and first-time filmmakers, they don't pay attention to that. And I think that because you've been around this stuff for so long, you knew where to focus the funds and where to the things that will actually elevate the material. Because despite the fact that you had a decent budget for this and you went three times over what you're planning on getting i do feel like you're punching above your weight class with us yeah you know we we did again to your point we called in every favor we had and uh and the folks at the formosa group kind of came through and like those guys are cutting star wars movies those guys are doing sound design on star trek films they're doing 200 million dollar movies and they're like yeah this seems cool <laughs> like we can do this in a couple of days we're in between some gigs it was not gonna take a lot of time Let's just bang it out. And so getting to sit in like a giant mixing stage with, you know, like I feel like Jay-Z, there's just nothing but knobs and buttons and levers and stuff. And I'm like, oh, what should this plane crash sound like? And I'm like, well, I want to hear like having metal. Like I want I want to hear like just, and if there's like a, a like a sperm whale sound you could toss in there, because I'm like, I remember listening to how they did the eight, Ed 209 and Robocop, and half of those sounds are like tiger That's... and shark and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, give me animal sounds. <laughs> <laughs> but it all works, man. It works so damn well. And it's just, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that this is happening for you right now at this moment that you got in before you were 50, because I'm, I'm 47. And so I think I've had that similar itch where I've been doing this for a long time now and I have that thing. Why haven't I gone back out after college and made my thing yet? And I, I need to do it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be on this scale. It doesn't have to be something that becomes anything. I just want to have a thing that I've made other than talking thing that about things. For sure. I mean, do, do the thing. It's so rewarding at the end of the day. Like it's never going to come out the way you think it's going to come out. Like I can still see the walls that are made of plywood on that plane that like if you if you catch it just right you see how it like shimmies a little bit once you close the door like i can i can still see the things that didn't you know the shots we didn't get the cuts that are a little weird like all those things i can still see it's not perfect but it's a thing that we made because we kind of believed it and it's a thing that we made and it and that doesn't change based on scale you know, like if it is two people in a hotel room, if it is three guys at a bar, if it is whatever it is, like the like, hey, ladies, gentlemen, others, betweens, we made this thing. Yeah, we, we gave it, you know, three or four days, like on the money, and then we gave it two or three months, and then we gave it a full year, and like we did it, and we'll always have done it. And you know, 
I, I, I get this question quite a bit from like young writers, young filmmakers who like, what should I do? Should I go to film school? Should I do this? Should I do whatever? I'm like, hey, listen, I'm never going to tell somebody not to go to school. Like if education is what you want, go get it. But if what you want to do is make movies, make movies. Yeah. Like it's cheaper than it's ever been before. It's more accessible than it's ever been before. You can shoot and edit and distribute from your pocket if you wanted to. Like literally tangerine i mean yeah you can yeah you can do it go do the thing like even if it's tiny and 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 feels insignificant you know or whatever just you've done it then go make another one then go make another one Um, i don't i don't think i have space opera in me so i think my uh my ambitions would be pretty small hey man dark star i'm pretty sure you could rig out a bathroom to feel like a tiny cockpit I, i okay so i I'm not, I had to double check and I know we're running on time here, but I was, um, I was inspired to watch escape from New York after watching your film. Cause there was <laughs> something that struck me about that cabin that reminded me of the president's plane. And I could not figure it out. And I'm like, is there something here that like, and no, there was nothing there, but what I think what ended up happening, there's something that I saw that movie when I was so young that I just that's the first time I saw a version of Air Force One. It was like somebody living in this plane, this idea of like <laughs> rooms and all this. And it's the first time I've had that feeling since I was a kid that like, oh, this is a plane. Like yeah. you can have a plane like this. This is and I had that same reaction. So and I I doubt there was any thought of connection there at all, but it was definitely something that happened to me. I mean, I, I wish I could say there was, other than my abiding love for John Carpenter's work. Um I think my my first real like Air Force One that I that I clocked as a thing that's cool yeah. was probably on the West Wing, um, you know, because you spent quite a bit of time on Air Force One and they had to clearly build a set to be Air Force One. I'm like, oh well, it should maybe feel like this a little bit and like that a little bit. And then Air Force One, the movie, but I do still have that deep love for uh, First Gate from New York and to be mentioned in any way in the same breath with that movie i will that will be my gift of the evening <laughs> well that was one of those things i thought and it's yeah i'm sure you've had this moment when you've interviewed people where you're like there's that thing that's just this itch in the back of my brain i'm going to throw it out there just in case it's not just me and probably yeah. nine times out of ten it's not but then occasionally you throw out that weird thing and you're the only one that saw it so who knows you yeah it's 100 percent worth it all the time because you know i, I having interviewed enough filmmakers specifically when i was a journalist i always hated talking to actors um i was like you i'm not good at it it's me i suck at it i was like listen i'm sure you're lovely people i just i don't want to be the 19th person this night tossing you this question that you have to find a way to answer but i would always talk to writers and directors and like and if you can come up with the thing that like because i remember i remember talking about um rogue one Mm. and i and i think I, i had mentioned it either on a podcast or whatever. And I was talking about how the opening of that felt a lot like Inglorious Bastards to me. And like Gary Witta, like hopped on Twitter and like DM'd me. He was like, exactly Inglorious Bastards. That's what we were doing. Nobody's mentioned that yet. I was like, see, this is what. Because <laughs> we're all nerds. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, and I, it is that thing that happens when you're interviewing people, when 
you have that connection. You're like, all right, I, I, I could fuck up the whole interview right now, but I'm going to throw something out there. And when somebody says that those, I've never been asked that before. It just, it feels nice. So yeah. it's just, that's my favorite. It's why I keep doing this, honestly. Yeah. So the, the, the best version that, that I had, and, and I, I do not mean to name drop, it was the craziest conversation, but I was interviewing Christopher Nolan um, for uh, for this Hollywood Reporter thing on The Dark Knight Rises. Um, and the publicist tells me, okay, we've got half an hour. He's in New York. Um, he's having tea at the Hudson Hotel. Um, you meet him in the in the cafe in the tea room, and you'll just talk to him for half an hour, and then I'll come and get you when we're done. And so I sit there for half an hour, and I'm just kind of like asking him everything I can think to ask him. Like, when the fuck else am I going to get to sit opposite Christopher Nolan and start peppering him with questions? Yeah. Of course I'm going to do this. And I think I hit him with this question of like, you know, Gotham City is different in every movie, not just from the geography of where you shoot it, because you've shot it in different places every time, but also the character of the city. Is it in your mind an evolving creature that continues to change as time goes on? And he was like, huh, I don't know the story you're writing, but that was a good question. <laughs> and then the publicist comes over. And uh, and and you could tell the signal they worked out between them was, if Chris is done, he's going to say, I don't think I'm going to have any more tea. And then we leave. But if he's not done, he's going to order another cup of tea. And so, like, publicist came over. He was like, I'm going to ha have the waitress bring me another, another you know, hot water tea kettle. <laughs> no. Oh, dude. Um. <laughs> That's phenomenal. That's damn good man and then i was like you know what? i'm done i'm not gonna do anybody ever again it's never gonna get better than this i'm out <laughs> it's there's those moments where you just pinch yourself and you say i can't believe this is actually happening right now and it's kind of you go into an other body experience i've had a couple of those and it's been one of them i forgot to hit record at the beginning of the call and mm -hmm. i had this bizarre wonderful it, it wasn't like this it was something that just popped up where uh Peter Shersitsky, who was a DP, yeah, for, you know, for Cronenberg, he shot mm -hmm. uh, Empire Strikes Back. And it was just one of those random things when I was first starting doing this, and I threw out an email, and he responded and said, yeah, let's jump on a call right now, and jumped on a call. And an hour and a half later, I'm hanging up going, oh, fuck, I didn't record that. And I didn't have it in me to say, hey, can we do that again? I'm not, I'm not that brazen. But then I just wasted an hour and a half of your day. So oh, yeah, that was one of the lower points. So One of the lower points. And yet still, you got to talk to a dude for an hour and a half. Pretty great. Pretty amazing. But pretty sorry, that, that's the only, that's the as close as I can get to a Christopher <laughs> Nolan-esque. But my version of it is I dropped the ball completely. That's just how i would do it in that moment but uh, mark i can't but, tell you how much this means to me to for you to take time out of your night to do this i do appreciate it man no this is so much fun thank you for reaching out i'm glad that they could set this up and bring us together in the wee hours of the los angeles night <laughs> well i'm on i'm on pacific time also i'm in arizona so no, it's, it's not that uh not that late for me so 10 yeah. 30, that's kind of perfect time for me honestly it's funny. I have a I have a, a comic book collaborator who I work with who lives in Jakarta, and so every now and again when we have to get on a Zoom, it's like, all right. So if we do nine a.m. my time, it's two a.m. the day after your time. Does that work for you? 
<clears throat> and she's like, actually it does, because I'm a vampire, so I'm up between 11 p.m. and I work until 6 a.m. And then Jakarta wakes up and it's loud anyways. So let's do it. And like, I don't, whatever you say. <laughs> so, okay, last thing, and then I'll let you get back to your night. But I, I got to, there's going to be another movie, a, f- a feature, another short, something like that down the pike, because I'm I'm a greedy consumer and I want more. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want it to be another 50 years that you're rounding it out at you know 98 saying gotta get gotta get in the next one before 100. I know, right? It's um if you asked me at any time during the the writing, the casting, the pre-production, even the shooting, if there was any more to this, my answer was always no. Like it is what it's designed to be. Like it is it's a short story. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a pop single. It doesn't need to be more. It's not a symphony. It's not begging for like orchestral maneuvers in the dark at all. It's just, this is kind of what it is. Um, But then it was like on the stage and my production designer, Ariel Vida, asking me like, hey, so I don't know if you've thought about this, but is is there a cargo hold on this plane? I was like, yeah, of course there is. She was like, well, what's in it? She's like, oh, um, well, I guess there would be the artifacts of the other kids who've been on this plane. And I was like, well, damn it. Now I know what the fucking story is. <laughs> this is literally the conversation that me and my wife had was that can his, can even after, can the body ever go back to earth again? If, cause that's the, if this ends, is this because of life that this exists or does this end if the body is still touching the ground um i you know not i'm not going to spoil anything uh, no but... i'm cutting that out I, I, this is gone we're done but this is between you and me time enough to figure you out time enough to write this down wish me luck get me hope
Voice Crack.